What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. One more, perhaps? Okay, let's take our Bibles out, and we're going to go to the book of Acts tonight. Acts chapter 27. It's in the New Testament. Acts chapter 27, and we're going to look at verses 27 to 38. When you find that in your Bible, would you please go ahead and stand up with us? Here at Gospel Fellowship, we stand up when we read the Word of God, just to remind ourselves that it is the inspired and inerrant Word of the only true and living God authoritative in all that it says, right and true and pure in all that it teaches. Let's listen now to the Word of God from Acts chapter 27. We're going to read verses 27 through 38 of this text. Listen now to the Word. When the fourteenth night had come and were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. In verse 35, when he had said these things, He took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. We were all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Here ends the reading. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for the words of testimony that we've heard already tonight. Lord, it is good to be a part of your church And even as I listen to my brothers and the Lord speak these words of praise to you tonight, I cannot help but imagine what it might be like to to try to live one's life without the love and encouragement and the compassion and nourishment of a church that cares for me just as much as I care for it. Father, I'm so thankful for the church. I'm so thankful 
Father, for the testimonies that we've heard tonight. I'm so thankful for your word. It is true and pure, God. We praise you that your word is inspired and that this book is the living testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, and his saving work of redemption. So, Father, bless the reading of the word to our ears. Bless the preaching of the word to our lives. Lord, may we have eyes to see Christ, and may our hearts be ready to love, serve, and follow him all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am personally very excited for tomorrow. I can hardly restrain it, to be honest. I think back to my childhood. I had an amazing childhood. Thanksgivings for us were incredible. They always took place at one of my grandparents' homes. I think in particular of my paternal grandfather having gatherings there. Big, huge house on the top of the hill, big table in the middle of what seemed to be a mansion at the time, and we'd connect table to table to table, and it would seem like there would be 60 to 70 people there. There probably really wasn't that many people, but in my mind there was. And we would gather together for a feast, and we would have turkey and ham and on and on it would go. And my Thanksgiving as a child were sort of like Norman Rockwell paintings. If you're not familiar with Norman Rockwell, you should, because his paintings are amazing. They capture the joy and the enthusiasm of contemporary life, and I just felt like that as a child. And then um, when I grew up and I had my own children, we moved away, moved away from our family. And so for the last 11 years, Thanksgiving Day was for the Everhards actually the loneliest day of the year because that's the day that we wanted to be with family. And we knew Christmas was coming six weeks from then, but not yet, and so we spent a lot of Thanksgivings alone. Now, sometimes we would get an invitation and go to somebody's house, and we're thankful for that. But a lot of them, we just went camping because we didn't have anything else to do. And sometimes we went camping, and it would even rain on us, and we would eat uh, canned food and things like this, and we'd make the best of it. But 11 years, Thanksgiving Day was a hole in my heart, and that's one of the reasons why we ended up moving back up north to be close to family. And so tomorrow, At 5.30, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to wake everybody else up in the house. And we're going to get in the car as soon as they're able to be awake. I'll be on my third cup of coffee by then. And we're going to drive over to Ohio, where our family is, both sides of the family. And I will personally be singing over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. As my wife rolls her eyes and my children roll their eyes behind her. And I'm going to have an incredible Thanksgiving, if the Lord wills. That's what I'm expecting tomorrow. But I realize that we've already heard a few testimonies tonight, that that may not be the case for everybody. And as much as I want that Norman Rockwellian painting of Thanksgiving for all of us, maybe that's not what's going to happen. Because this year has been pretty hard for us here at Gospel Fellowship We've had some amazing successes and joys too, no doubt about that. God is doing wonderful things in this church. I'm very thankful for the movement of his, his spirit in this congregation. And yet we've heard it. You just heard it tonight with your own ears that we have, we have thanksgiving on one hand, and yet there's pain, there's hurt. We can't deny that. We wouldn't try. We've had COVID this year, as everybody has. But our church has been hit pretty hard the last six weeks or so. A lot of sickness. And even in the testimonies, you've heard about a couple of people that have passed away that were precious to us here, and that hurts. And not only that, but things are changing around our nation, and some of it's for the worse. 
There's social changes and concerns and lockdowns and mandates. And now we're talking about inflation. Have you priced out a turkey yet? I'm sure you have. It's not what it used to be. We look at some of the things in our nation today and we're rightly concerned about this. And, and even if none of those things were the problem, some of us are not going to have that Rockwellian Thanksgiving because of distance, geographical distance. Our kids have grown up. They've gone off. They've started their own lives. So it's not what it used to be or not what we wanted to be. And so we come to this question tonight of whether Thanksgiving is actually an emotion that we feel in the heart. Is it? Is that what we expect? Is, is gratitude an emotion? Is it a mood? Is it something I feel? Is it, is it, is it, is it um, an affection? Or is Thanksgiving an action? Is it something that I do? Is it a, is it a response, even a physical response with my hands or my, my mouth giving praise or my body? What exactly is Thanksgiving? And what's interesting about this text, and the reason I chose it tonight, I think it'll be obvious here in just a moment, is that the Apostle Paul here is in a very precarious situation in Acts chapter 27, because if you didn't notice from the reading, he's in the middle of a shipwreck. In fact, if you read to the end of the chapter, you're going to notice that the ship actually does sink. And so this seems like a very strange place for us to read, but there it is, right in verse 35. I hope you still have your Bible open with you. We always do that here. That's how we just work through the text together. Verse 35 says this, And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. Now that struck me immediately, that they're in the middle of the shipwreck, and you can picture, can't you, the seas churning, and you can picture the waves crashing over the sides of the boat. You can picture the spray of the water even in Paul's face as he's wiping his hair out of his eyes and he's trying to stand there holding out this bread and he's about to divide it and give thanks. And yet uh, the boat is, is precariously positioned in, in the water such that they know for a fact that there are rocks beneath the water. Any one of those rocks has the potential to knock a hole in the, the stern or the bow of the boat and sink the vessel right then and there. And yet, in the midst of this chaos, the storm, thunder cracking and lightning and rain beating down, coming at an angle like this. And yet, in the midst of the storm, storm Paul stands up and what does he do? He, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. And so let's just take a moment here and frame up the context of what's happening in chapter 27, unless we forgot. Everything is going wrong for the Apostle Paul. Pretty much everything. Uh, in chapter 21, he was arrested on charges of blasphemy and defiling the temple. Uh, he was arrested and taken in as a prisoner, and then he stood trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 23. And then after that, there was a plot to kill him later on in chapter 23, verse 12. And now Paul has endured hearings before Felix and before Agrippa, that's chapters 24, 25, and 26, and then he appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen to go to Rome, and so he is now on a prisoner transport vessel, that's the context, being shipped over to Rome, capital of the empire, where he's going to stand before an imperial trial. And even as he's on this transport vessel for prisoners, everything is still going wrong here. Let's just survey chapter 27 for a few moments here. I want you to notice how many times the word difficulty comes up. See it in verse 7. We sailed for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. Same word in verse 8. Coasting along, 
with difficulty. Verse 9, we see that the voyage was now dangerous. Verse 14, same chapter, chapter 27. Soon a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck up from the land. Verse 16, running along, we managed with difficulty. There's the third time the word difficulty has come up in this chapter. Verse 18, we were violently storm-tossed. Verse 21, we've been without food. Verse 27, it's midnight. Verse 29, fearing we might run on the rocks. Now, in your wildest imagination, could you possibly contrive a situation in which Paul would have less reason to give thanks? Chained as he probably is to the other prisoners? Wondering how they're going to make it through the night in the very darkest hours? When the only thing they can see is by the flashes of lightning cracking just off the bow of the ship? And yet there's Paul standing there steadying his sea legs, giving thanks and praise to God. And so what I'd like to do tonight is give you four takes. It's not good to be a taker. Somebody describes you as a taker, that's not a compliment. Okay. Tomorrow we're going to give thanks. But tonight, ironically, we're looking for four takes from the text. And so let me just point out, first of all, number one, in situations like this, we are, number one, to take heart. Look at verse 22 in the text. Take heart, he says, yet I urge you now to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So Paul, uh, leader as he is, Paul is always in a situation in which he springs up as the leader. He's always the verbal leader. He's always a man with a testimony on his lips. He's never short for words. He never lacks something to say. Paul is clearly not in charge here in this scenario. The ship captain is. But Paul just one of the prisoners, stands up, and with the sheer force of his own personality and perhaps as well the aiding and the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul begins to preach an impromptu sermon to both the sailors and the prisoners alike. And what does he say to them? He says, first of all, take heart. It's a Greek word that means cheer up. It's, it's a word that means Set your affections on the higher plane. You're looking down. You need to lift up your gaze. Cheer up. Gladden yourself. Be thankful. Have a right spirit within you. And it's kind of interesting that Paul would use this phrase, take heart, because there's somebody else, another great leader in the New Testament, another person who led with the sheer force of his own greater and higher personality, a person who was filled with even more power of the Holy Spirit, who used to regularly say those same two words. Who is it? It's Christ. Did you ever notice that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is walking around looking for people who are hurting, and what does he very often say to those people? Same two words in the English, slightly different word in the Greek, but we translate it the same in the English, take heart. So let me just fire off a couple examples for you. The paralytic lying on the mat in Matthew chapter 9. Remember that story? He has good friends. His friends lower him down through the roof because the guy's paralyzed. And, and here he's heard about the Nazarene teacher who may actually be able to do something about his paralysis. And when he's lowered down in the center of that crowded room, Jesus looks him in the eye. And what are the first two words out of his mouth in the English? Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven, he says. 
And he says the same thing to the bleeding woman, same chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. Remember the woman, she's bleeding for years. And she sneaks up to Jesus again in a crowded situation. What does she do? Remember what she does? She, she sneaks up and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus grants her this healing, almost unwittingly as it were. Of course, he knows all things as the Son of God. But he comes across as slightly surprised by this. And he looks to her and he calls her daughter. And again, he says, take heart. And speaking of sea incidents, speaking of near disasters on the sea, isn't there another passage in Matthew chapter 14 where the disciples are on the sea and Jesus Christ comes walking up to them in the middle of the storm and lo and behold, what does Jesus say in this moment? He says, take heart, ego a me, it is I. And Jesus, using that phrase, it is I, or in the Greek, literally I am, he, he gives the divine name and he encourages the disciples with his very presence. And so no wonder Paul, then here in Acts chapter 27, is able to speak a word of comfort because that's the same word of comfort that Jesus often doles out. In fact, look how much the situation has changed here. In, in chapter 27, Paul, first of all, has a bit of a bad report. In chapter 27, verse 10, he says this, Sirs, um, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Notice that in verse 10. Paul is convinced here in verse 10 that the ship is going to sink and there's going to be a great death toll corresponding. But in verse 22, Paul changes his mind. Because now in verse 22 he says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, what is it that caused Paul to change his perspective here? Why is it that his first report in verse 10, he says it's going to cost lives. Now in verse 22, he says there will be no loss of life. How so? Well, because we read in verse 23 that Paul has had an encounter with the living God. It says in verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. I love this phrase here, an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul knows that he's in the Lord's hands. He always has been. He belongs to him. And this is why Paul can take that bread and stand before all the sailors and give them a word of exhortation. So number one, take heart. Number two, take heed. This is our second take tonight, verse 34. When we tell somebody to take heed, what we're doing is we're giving them an exhortation, right? We're, we're telling them to do something. And here, verse 34, Paul is going to give, on one hand, very practical common sense advice though he should not be in a position to do so as just one of the prisoners. And then he's going to say something that is richly theological, that is going to moor that common sense advice. Let's look at the verse, 34. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Now, that's the practical common advice that Paul has. For, and here comes the theological mooring, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And again, I ask you, where is it that we've heard that before? Um, somebody else said that. This is not Paul uh, freestyling off the cuff here in a moment of urgency and necessity. Paul is recalling, isn't he, something that is heard, he's heard before. In fact, this line that not a hair 
is to perish from the head of any of you is, of course, a quotation from Jesus. And interestingly here, we know that Luke, who is the author of both Luke and Acts, is present here in this very moment. Luke is with Paul on the ship because he says in verse 37, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. This is that part of the book of Acts where Luke uses the first person plural we, indicating that he's there present with them. And it's in Luke's gospel that we have these same words recorded from Jesus Not a hair from your head shall perish. So go with me then to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to hear this in context as given originally by Jesus. So Luke chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 in Luke chapter 12. Same writer, same writer that wrote the book of Luke is also the writer of the book of Acts. And here, Luke, quoting Jesus, says in verse 4 of chapter 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Who is he talking about there? Obviously God, right? Yes, I tell you, fear him, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Seven, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And in this text, Jesus reminds us just how precious we are to him. He gives this beautiful comparison. He says, look, five sparrows are sold for two pennies. That's not very much. That's not of great value necessarily. And yet, even these sparrows, which are worth virtually nothing, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. And so by making a comparison from lesser to greater, Jesus then says, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now let me just ask you this question here about this line of the hairs on your head being numbered. Is Jesus saying here, and let's really think about this for just a moment, is Jesus saying here that no trouble is ever going to befall you? Is that the point? It can't be the point. This is not a promise that we're going to be delivered and spared from every possible situational danger. And how do I know that? Because this line about the hairs of your head comes in the very context of those who want to kill your body. You see, Jesus is not necessarily promising that nothing is ever going to befall you that's not going to be dangerous or precarious. What he's promising here in this line about the sparrows and the hairs on your head is that the Lord your God knows you and loves you and sustains you and promises, and, and promises to protect you such that nothing can happen to you that is outside of his holy and divine and sovereign hand. Okay? Now, stay in Luke and flip over with me one more time to Luke chapter 21, and we're going to see this line again. And once again, this line about the hairs on your head is going to come in the context of great danger and persecution. Because here, Jesus foretelling some of the cataclysm that is going to come, he says in Luke chapter 21, verse 10, he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Okay, so that doesn't sound like perfect situational serenity, does it? No, it doesn't. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you shall be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity 
to bear witness. Therefore, settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries are able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, 18, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And so here again, in context, Jesus is not promising that you're never going to be in some situational danger or difficulty. What he is promising is that you will have his sustaining covenantal presence to guard and to protect you. That's the promise. I've listened to these old words from the Heidelberg Catechism. I want to quote this to you. This is Heidelberg Catechism number one. Sometimes we even use this in our worship services on the Lord's Day. The the question in the catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me, listen to the quotation coming up here, that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing, ready henceforth to live Unto him, And there again is this language of the Lord preserving even the hairs on our heads. Now what I want to make a point here of application is simply this. Paul didn't come up with that at the moment of the storm. He memorized that earlier. He hid that scripture in his heart. He knew it. And in the very moment where Paul reaches perhaps one of the lowest points of his life, he opens up the treasury of the word of God, and he is able to quote a scripture with sustaining, encouraging power, not only for himself, but for everybody else within earshot. It's amazing. So number one, take heart. Number two, take heed to the promises of God. Three, take bread. Look at verse 35. Now this is an interesting verse, and we're going to have to do a little homework here. And when he said these things, He took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Now, you got to picture this in your mind. The ship is rocking, right? We've already mentioned the water's crashing over the sides of the ship. The soldiers are all exhausted, for goodness sakes. It says they've been a long time without food in verse 21, right? They're, They're exhausted, they're worn out, they're famished. And yet Paul stands up, and he's got a loaf of bread, apparently, one of the rations from the ship, perhaps. And Paul begins to hold it forth, and he takes it, and he breaks it in the presence of all of them. And now let me just ask you this question here. You should be tracking with me, right? You should be tracking with this. This sounds like something we've heard before, doesn't it? Like, is this, is this new? We heard something like this? Is this part of our liturgy from time to time where we say words like, he took and he broke and he gave thanks, and he gave, what does that sound like? Sounds like communion. Sounds a lot like communion. But is it? Is Paul, is Paul doing the Lord's Supper here? Interesting thought. And as much as I want to say yes, I don't think that's what's happening here. For a couple reasons. 
Let me give you three reasons why I don't think this is the Lord's Supper. Number one, no mention of the cup. Right? You want to have the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever you want to call it, it's bread and cup. We don't have cup here. We've got bread. Second problem. Uh, not a lot of believers on this ship. Paul and Luke, maybe another couple of believers who happen to be traveling with them. But the rest of the people on the boat are uh, felons and murderers and thieves and others that, as far as we know, have not repented and confessed faith in Christ. Not saying that they can't, not saying they're beyond hope, not saying they're beyond redemption, not making that claim at all. Certainly, God saves all kinds of people. But at the moment, it certainly seems like Paul is distributing this Thanksgiving in the presence of unbelievers. And that is one thing that we must be very careful not to do with the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, it is a table for believers. And so I doubt very much that Paul would simply indiscriminately distribute the elements of the sacraments to these people who have not yet repented and had faith in Christ. So I don't think it's that. Third, third problem is that in 1 Corinthians, when Paul gives the instructions for how to receive the Lord's Supper rightly, the Lord's Supper is something to be done in the church. And by the church, I don't necessarily mean the physical structure of a building of the church. They didn't even have those in the days of the New Testament. I mean in the context of the gathering, worshipful presence of the confessing and professing body of believers. And that doesn't seem to be the case here either. So as much as it would be really cool to think about this text as Paul doing the Lord's Supper in the middle of a, of a shipwreck in a storm, I don't think that's happening. So what is happening? Well, the, the language here, though, is still so interestingly parallel to the Lord's Supper with this whole language of taking, breaking, giving thanks, and eating. This is the best I can come up with. Okay? This is not communion, but this is the kind of confidence that springs from the heart of one who has regularly communed with God. This isn't communion itself, but this is the kind of gratitude and thankfulness that just naturally springs forth from one who does regularly commune with God through Christ. So the takeaway for this bread distribution ceremony here that Paul does in verse 35 is simply this. Thanks can be given in times of serenity and in times of chaos. Thanks can be given in times of abundance or times of scarcity. Remember, they haven't eaten for 14 days. Thanks can be given when we're surrounded by family and loved ones or even when we're surrounded by strangers and enemies and unbelievers. None of those situational uh, factors are relevant. We can still give thanks with the heart. Okay, So take heart, take heed, take bread. And then finally this, we do have to mention verse 38. I want to say, take action. Because in verse 38, look at this, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And so then, after Paul encourages them with this word, they have to get back to work. Because the ship is still sinking. And so what do the soldiers do, or the sailors, I should say, they begin lightening the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And you might say, well, that sounds so strange to do because you need the, the wheat to eat for food. And yet, in a precarious moment like this, a dangerous moment like this, when they're in the darkness of the night, 
and the waves are rolling. You really can't see what's happening below the waves. And you know that there's rocks near because you've already taken soundings and you've discerned that you're within dangerous waters. Then the best thing you can do in that moment in the ship is to lighten the ship so it doesn't hang so low in the water. In other words, if there's rocks just below you, you want to get lifted up from the water as high as possible to preserve the ship. Now, interestingly, if we were to read the rest of the chapter, we're going to find that the worst case scenario does happen. The ship is sunk. It does break apart. Uh, They are shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Paul is bitten by a viper in chapter 28, verse 3. He goes to Rome as a prisoner, and yet, even there, when Paul is in Rome as a prisoner, what does it say? Look at the last verse of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, last two verses. He lived there two whole years as a prisoner in Rome at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Worst case scenario happens, and yet Paul seems to only use these things to give further thanks and praise to God and to preach the gospel as often as he can. So, uh, wrapping up, back to that Norman Rockwell picture of the perfect Thanksgiving. Um, If we waited for the perfect moment to give thanks, when everything was always right, then we would probably never give thanks at all. And the reality is, we live in a world where there are rocks underwater and Wooden ships sink and good men go to prison. And if we're waiting for our lives to be just so, so that everything is like that Norman Rockwell painting, we're probably going to be waiting too long. So it's not always like that in the real world. Sometimes you have everybody that you want around you at the table, but there's no food on the table. Sometimes you've got food on the table, but the people that you wish were around the table aren't there. Sometimes you have neither. Sometimes you have both. And in whatever situation we find ourselves, the Christian attitude is the attitude that we see in the Apostle Paul. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it, and he began to eat. We're going to do that tomorrow. Let's go ahead and stand up tonight and sing our closing hymn, number 164, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Hi everybody, my name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.